Welcome to The Burning Word, a podcast that invites you to return to the Word and encounter God again. I'm your host, John Perrine, and we are moving through this series on Augustine and identity, specifically the crisis of identity. How do we know who we are? Where do we turn to look in this contested cultural landscape for direction and guidance on how to become who we are before God, how to become ourselves, how to know who that self is, how to articulate that self, not only to other people, but to God. These are the great questions that Augustine is asking. And last episode, we started with book one of his confessions. Books here are just kind of like chapters. And in chapter one, book one of his confessions, Augustine is going to give us some profound and weighty thoughts on what it means to be human, on starting with memory, starting with language, starting with our youth. Here in our fourth episode, we're going to unpack the next couple books in Augustine's Confessions, books two to four, and we're going to look at the way in which Augustine sees sin and desire interacting to create this fragmenting of himself. In fact, Augustine is going to describe for us what it looks like when your identity, yourself falls apart as it's pulled in all of these competing directions. We're gonna try to unpack what role sin is playing in Augustine's vision of what it means to be human. And I think by following Augustine in this journey, you're gonna be given a lot of opportunities to reflect on your own story and the ways in which your identity has been fragmented, the moments when it too has been pulled apart. And we're going to begin to talk about how God, even now, can begin drawing back together again the identity you once had in him. So without further ado, let's dive in. Okay, so let's dive in. If there's any more prep work you would like to prepare for listening to to these confessions, if you perhaps have missed the last couple of episodes, you may want to go back to check out some of the setup for all this. But if you're here with me, I want to dive right into book two. Book two of the confessions, it's a really important book. One scholar who's been a helpful guide in the confessions is named John Cavadini. And Cavadini has this incredible article where he talks about book two as the book of shadows, the book of shadowy loves. So here's what you need to know for book two, book three, and book four. Augustine's going to take us into the darker turn of his identity. And what he's capturing, Cavadini's capturing by describing this as the book of shadows, is that Augustine's going to describe this process, this process that takes place in our loves when we attempt to love earthly goods that either disappear, right, because they're consumed, this is sort of the nature of any material thing, you can go to use it, you can love it as you use it, but eventually when it is used, it is gone. So it no longer endures, it no longer exists, it is something that is a temporary love. Or what can sometimes happen is that you go to love something that you think maybe will endure, will exist, a relationship, a person, or even just like a a value, you know, like virtue or honor or character or humility or hard work or sex or just anything that could be more enduring. And in going to pursue it, What Augustine is going to consistently describe is that he finds that instead of it being substantive, instead of it being enduring, instead of it being real, he instead realizes he has only been chasing, loving a shadow of what was real. It was close, it drew him towards itself, but in loving it, he realized it either would fade and pass away, or it could not endure. It was not truly real. As with book one, some of the joy of the confessions is going to come from just hearing Augustine in his own words. So let me give you, this is the start of book two. It's going to be sweeping and intense, and you're going to see the exciting, voyeuristic, titillating sense of why the confessions is kind of intriguing. And yet you're going to see that as we hear Augustine start to confess his sins, he has this masterful way of suggesting to you the things that he's done without actually telling you 
what it is that he's done. So he's like capturing all of the intrigue that would get an early audience and get us today excited. Like, man, we're about to hear the worst stuff that Augustine's ever done. And yet when you stare more closely at it, you realize he didn't actually always say exactly what these things were that he had been doing. So let's just dive in. Here's book two. Now, I want to call to mind the foul deeds I committed, those sins of the flesh that corrupted my soul, not in order to love them, but to love you, my God. Out of love for loving you, I do this, recalling my most wicked ways and thinking over the past with bitterness so that you may grow ever sweeter to me. For you are a sweetness that deceives not, a sweetness blissful and serene. I will try now to give a coherent account of my disintegrated self. For when I turned away from you, the one God, in pursuit of multitude of things, I went to pieces. There was a time in adolescence when I was afire to take my fill of hell. I boldly thrust out rank, luxuriant growth in various furtive love affairs, and my beauty wasted away, and I rotted in your sight, intent on pleasing myself and winning favor in the eyes of men. Okay, so this is an important paragraph for Augustine, much like the first paragraph of book one was important. Augustine is capturing the sense I've already alluded to, that as he goes to love all of these not real things, what he's actually doing is pulling pieces of himself. He is quite literally horcruxing himself, right? For any Harry Potter fans out there, that image of the horcrux in Harry Potter is so profound because as violence occurs, or even for Augustine, this is just as love occurs, as love pulls him in opposite directions, he is going to fragment pieces of himself to give away to these things which he thinks will love him back, and yet which he realizes in the end were illusory. They were actually, as he says, things which instead of filling his stomach with sweetness, set his stomach afire with his fill of hell. I think there's something true in this, that whenever something you go to love is transient or it ends, there is a true hellishness in wrestling and holding something that's broken. I mean, if you ever had a breakup, particularly a bad breakup, maybe you're one of the few people, as I go to share this illustration, that claims to have had a good breakup. God bless you. I am amazed you will have to share your wisdom with us of how you manage to break up well. But for most of us, when a breakup occurred, what happened was you had placed a part of yourself in the hope that this relationship, this dating relationship, would somehow fulfill or satisfy you. And when you go to pull away, even if it's just this short couple of weeks, 15-year-old, you know, high highs, low lows, attempt at romance, if we're being honest with ourselves, unless you numbed yourself out, unless you weren't really invested in this thing to begin with, unless you weren't actually looking for love, if you put anything in, by the time you pull away, you will realize you are leaving something behind. And that's what Augustine's getting at. Part of himself is wasting away as he is investing portions of himself in the various loves he pursued. So Augustine is going to have a lot of language that he is very clear he was sexually promiscuous in his youth. Now, scholars debate how promiscuous Augustine actually was. His language sounds quite egregious, like he was doing a lot of sordid and sundry things. Most scholars think that if you actually would have been with Augustine at this time, while he surely did get up to shenanigans, while who knows, he may have even been sleeping with various prostitutes or one-night stands or whatever else Augustine was possibly doing in this time, it probably was not anything more extreme than a typical youth in the Roman world. And that's not really to excuse it, because if anyone doesn't excuse it, it's Augustine you'll catch from him. He is horrified, particularly at the ways in which his sexuality expressed the deep desires of his love and yet fragmented himself through its expression in whoever his sexual partners were. Now, we're going to find out soon that Augustine is quite quickly going to take a concubine, a committed partner, which in his days had kind of been the equivalent of a live-in boyfriend or girlfriend, somebody that you move in with. There was a clear commitment to the concubine, although by law, you even would by law sort of announce that this person was your legal spouse partner, but they weren't actually civically, societally married to you. My best understanding of it is that marriage was reserved particularly for social climbers for dowries and inheritance. 
And so if you were on the lower rung of society, it was fine if you took concubines. It was basically your expressed commitment to have a sexual partner that you were procreating with. But if you were hoping that at some point you would become successful enough in your career that you would get the interest of a very wealthy family who wanted to marry their daughter to you so that she could sow the benefits of your high-profile status and success, then you would take on these concubine-type relationships to have a sort of live-in, semi-legal spouse before having to commit the inheritance status onto the child you were having. If that makes any sense to you, this is what Augustine's going to do. So I, I prep all this just to say, Augustine's a mess. Augustine's got a lot going on in his life. He's probably not any more of a mess than any of us. Augustine is not doing things here that were probably in the deepest, darkest recesses of sexual escapades. But listen here as Augustine keeps describing himself. He's going to say, What was it that delighted me? Only loving and being loved. But there was no proper restraint, as in the union of mind with mind, where a bright boundary regulates friendship. From the mud of my fleshly desires and my erupting puberty belched out murky clouds that obscured and darkened my heart, until I could not distinguish the calm light of love from the fog of lust. Just on a side note, isn't that a great line? I mean, Augustine was a master of weaving images together. So here he keeps going. The two swirled about together and dragged me, young and weak as I was, over the cliffs of my desires and engulfed me in a whirlpool of sin. Your anger had grown hot at my doings, yet I did not know. I was deafened by that clanking chain of my mortal state, which was the punishment for my soul's pride, and I was wandering away from you, yet you let me go my way. I was flung hither and thither, I poured myself out, frothed and floundered in the tumultuous sea of my fornications, and you were silent. Oh my joy, how long I took to find you. At that time you kept silence as I continued to wander far from you, and sowed more and more sterile seeds to my own grief, abased by my pride and wearied by my restlessness. So as you're capturing the sense of where Augustine is taking us into his sin, into his emptiness, He's going to have this image that comes up throughout the whole Confessions. It's this beautiful, subtle image. But for Augustine, he clearly sees in his own life the journey of the prodigal son. The prodigal son from Luke 15, who's going to be given permission, maybe you caught it there, permission to go his own way. This is how Augustine sees the Lord allowing any of us who wander. We are free to go. We are free to take the inheritance we've been given, which is the good bodies that the Lord has blessed us with, which are the inherent gifts and abilities and talents. We take these and we, we go our own way. We are free to go, to go searching for what it is that we are desiring. And yet as Augustine looks back, he sees whatever the extent of his sins, he sees them all as emptiness, as the sense of unsatisfactory, sterile sowing of seeds. Isn't that just such a great image that Augustine is doing all this work of planting his loves? I mean, you clearly hear even the euphemism sexually underneath it. And yet anything that he's doing all this work to plant, it's ultimately going to be sterile. There's going to be no love waiting for him on the other side of what he invests in it. As Augustine is moving through this journey deeper and deeper into sin, as he's describing his search for love, He talks about how he is forced to stay home for a year before he's freed to go to Carthage. So if Augustine was born in Thagaste, which is this smaller town, his parents are not that extremely wealthy. Uh, He gestures towards the fact that the reason he has to stay home for this year is that his dad doesn't have enough money to send him on into the further, more prominent education that would be required that was appropriate to this pretty exemplary gifting that Augustine is demonstrating from a young age. This brings us to one of the fascinating dynamics in the confessions that I could dedicate lots of time to, but we'll probably only just mention here and there as we keep going. Augustine's father is going to be an incredibly disappointing character to Augustine. This is one of the first times he mentions him, and all you get from Augustine is a sense that his father was not present and did not care. He had a distant and removed father. Anytime his father shows up, his father's looking to get something out of Augustine. So he wants Augustine to be successful 
for the sake of himself. He wants Augustine to become a man. Uh, he tells this really sad, quick story about being in the baths, the Roman baths, and his father looking over and seeing that Augustine had reached the age of puberty and saying, good, now you can be a man. And that's all the interaction and fathering that Augustine gets from him. And Augustine is, is kind of heartbroken. You see there's this framing that Augustine does throughout the book. And there's just a lot to unpack here that he doesn't even name his father until the very end because Augustine is trying to draw the distinction that in heaven he needed a father and he now is looking and getting comfort from his heavenly father for the unnamed father who was not fatherly to him. Even as Augustine is trying to own the responsibility that for whatever the faults of his father, his father was not a central character in his story because as Augustine is drawing on the prodigal son, Augustine is the son who turned his back on his own father, who is wandering away from his father, who ultimately wasn't interested in what his father wanted out of him, wasn't interested in pleasing his father, really wanted nothing to do with his own father. Augustine is going to tragically later on, just in passing, mention his father dies when Augustine's 16. But he barely mentions it. He's going to spend far more time talking about the death of his friend than he is going to spend talking about the death of his father. I mean, isn't that tragic that the death of a friend is going to cause far more grief in the life of Augustine than the death of his own father? Yet, the glimmers of hope that are going to resurface as we keep going with the confessions is that the only other mention of father in the confessions is when Augustine is going to be introduced to Ambrose. We'll mention it when it happens. here. A new earthly father offers him the kindness and the gentleness and the wisdom that his own earthly father could not. As well as then noting that at the very end of the Confessions in Book 9, there's actually going to be some beautiful peace that Augustine is going to make with his own father. So in a way, he's taking you on the journey of himself as he's telling his story by highlighting to you the ambivalence he had at the time to his own dad. If, if that's sort of this snippet that happens, Augustine stays home for this year because he has to work because his dad can't afford to send him to Carthage. The next really significant moment that takes place in book two is this incident with the pear tree. So what you're about to find is that this scene is one of the most famous in the confessions, and there's a number of reasons why it's famous. Some think Augustine is totally out in left field. In fact, this is one of those scenes where Nietzsche was said to have laughed in derision at how petty and naive Augustine was concerning human nature. Yet, for good reason, theologically and rhetorically, what's worth keeping in mind here is that Augustine knows. Augustine knows that the first sin took place in the garden, and Augustine knows that the first sin was picking a fruit from a tree, yet brilliantly Augustine is going to reflect on this incident, this incident from his youth, in which a sort of equivalent type of sin spun in its very own way that seems to resonate with a truthfulness and an authenticity from Augustine's life is going to become the profound object lesson that for all of the possible sins that we could be tempted to think are the worst sins, the most egregious forms of rebellion against God, Augustine is going to spend the most time not on those sins, be it sexual sins or murder or violence or anger, but he's going to spend time focusing on this sin that we're about to hear. So I'm just going to read this incident to you and then we can reflect a little more on it. Augustine is going to say, Beyond question, Theft is punished by your law, O Lord, and by the law written in human hearts, which not even sin itself can erase. For does any thief tolerate being robbed by another thief, even if he is rich and the other is driven by want? I was under no compulsion of need, unless a lack of moral sense can count as need, and a loathing for justice, and a greedy, full-fed love of sin. Yet I wanted to steal and steal I did. I already had plenty of what I stole, and of much better quality too, and I had no desire to enjoy it when I resolved to steal it. I simply wanted to enjoy the theft for its own sake and the sin. Close to our vineyard there was a pear tree laden with fruit. This fruit was not enticing, either in appearance or in flavor. We nasty lads went there to shake down the fruit and carry it off at dead of night, after prolonging our games out of doors until that late hour according to our abominable custom. We took enormous quantities, not to feast on ourselves, but perhaps 
to throw to the pigs. We did eat a few, but that was not our motive. We derived pleasure from the deed simply because it was forbidden. Look upon my heart, O God. Look upon this heart of mine on which you took pity and its abysmal depths. Enable my heart to tell you now what it was seeking in this action which made me bad for no reason, in which there was no motive for my malice except malice. The malice was loathsome, and I loved it. I was in love with my own ruin, in love with decay, not with the thing for which I was falling into decay, but with decay itself. For I was depraved in soul, and I leapt down from your strong support into destruction, hungering not for some advantage to be gained by the foul deed, but for the foulness of it. Okay, so Augustine's going to go on from there, and he's going to reflect for quite an extensive amount of book two on what the motives were for this incident. What was motivating him? You hear him already begin with this understanding that there was no intrinsic need, or in Augustine's language, any good that Augustine was attempting to gain out of this act. This is part of what makes it so wicked to Augustine, why it functions in such a central role as the sin that typifies all other sins. Most sins have some form of good that's drawing us. So there's something about sex. There's something about maybe even the power that can be gained through violence. There's something about stealing something that we want or need or think we need that becomes part of the enticing draw. It's why we act upon this desire. Even if part of us knows what we're doing is wrong, there's another part of us that says there's some good I'm hoping will come out of it. Yet Augustine, so intriguingly, from a theological perspective, zeroes in on the fact that this sin This sin, as he examines his own heart, had no good that was holding itself out to him. In fact, this act particularly is so vile because there was no good to be gained from doing it besides simply the evil, the thrill of the malice, the thrill of thieving for thieving's sake. Augustine notes that this is where evil is at its most manifest, when all good has been stripped from evil. And Augustine's going to get into some pretty extensive reflections on evil. And what distinguishes Augustine's theology of evil is that he does not see evil as an object in and of itself. But evil is simply what happens when you deprive something of all good to the point where no good exists any longer. So that's a complicated thought. We'll get more into it. But a couple other themes here to note before we move on from this fascinating story that's well worth the hype and notoriety that it has functioning in Augustine's tale. The first is that you may have caught, he throws it as a sideways glance that maybe the only reason that they were stealing these pears is to throw them to the pigs. Augustine beautifully here is weaving this prodigal son story but deepening it. The prodigal son who's motivated by the sin itself. There's no good there outside of the father's home, as Augustine pictures theologically this scene. There's the sense in which the pigs are sort of, pigs are present, right? The pigs are lingering on the periphery of Augustine's imagination, even as he reflects on the scene with the pears. It's like our sins are just there to be chucked before pigs. That's the pity, that's the lowliness of the actions that we're taking, and yet still even pigs become this sort of motivating fact maybe the pigs will enjoy this. It's just sort of a beautiful rhetorical twist that Augustine's building in. Another interesting theme that Augustine will explore throughout his confessions is that he notes he did not sin alone. That Actually, his friends were there. He'll talk more about it towards the end of book two. He'll say, if my friends hadn't been there, I don't know that I would have sinned, but there is something about friendship that Augustine will see as so vital. Friends either have the power to pull us back towards God, to be the good that God uses to draw us towards himself, or friends have the ultimate power to corrupt us, to encourage us into our nothingness, to actually become part of the forces that are pulling our identity apart, that are fragmenting who we are. And I've seen this be so true in my own life. I see this anytime a friend walks away from the faith, you see that around their decisions, there's this fragmenting force of fellow companions who are pulling them towards whatever destruction it is they're walking towards. Finally, what's helpful to note, I I think if we're 
trying to get into the heart of what Augustine's getting at with sin. He doesn't fully unpack it here in this book, but by the time he gets to City of God later in his theological reflection, City of God is about 10 years on from Confessions. Augustine is finally going to pinpoint he sees pride as the central facet to sin. So when he says, I was in love with my own ruin, in love with decay, not with the thing for which I was falling into decay, but with decay itself. Augustine sees that there's something about the nature of pride in an individual that the turn ultimately is not from God towards other goods. The turn happens when we take goods that God has offered us and we simply become interested in consuming them for our own sake. We simply become so inwardly turned that we prioritize ourself, our own identity. And ironically for Augustine, this is one of the deep mysteries of identity, but I think it's helpful for us. When we turn towards ourself, when the sin of pride is enacted, pride, ironic, is this pursuit of the building up of ourselves, the inflating of ourselves, the overextending of ourself. And yet Augustine is again and again going to note how that very act of pride is what ultimately rips ourself apart. Like you think in pride that you are expanding who you are, you're expanding your identity, but it's always going to be the force of pride that rather than secure us, bring us back to our core, to our essence, to this humble center of standing before God, that for Augustine is where identity is going to have its bedrock and foundation. Instead, pride is the swelling like a balloon that inevitably is going to burst into nothingness. You realize it was just air that was filling up the center of yourself this whole time. This image is worth holding on to. Augustine will brilliantly stage a second incident at a tree that will cover the redemptive arc of God's journey in his life. He knows what he's doing here. He is brilliant in how he has shaped and structured this work. But this incident by itself is worth reflecting on in our own search of our personal histories, in our own search for our own identity. I mean, what instance or action stands there for you as you examine your youth, as the moment at which you acted upon the interest of yourself for no other sake than doing the evil that was in front of you, than just twisting a good for no reason into something that becomes self-consuming and empty, something that ultimately becomes a shadow. My story that I tell, it's a bizarre story, it's an overly personal, perhaps too vulnerable story, but I distinctly remember as a child around the age of five or six, an incident where at one point I was using a toilet in my family's home on the main floor. It was our main bathroom. And something I did broke the toilet. So something in pulling the lever or some mechanism in the bowl. I, I think my dad had even opened up the top of the toilet because he was trying to fix it. And I started fiddling with it and I could tell it broke. So there now was waste in the toilet. The toilet was not flushing. And the thing is, my dad was not a cruel man at all. Um, my dad is pretty gentle, kind, relational. And so the weird thing was I knew as a child, five or six, I knew I wouldn't really get in trouble. Like if I just made a relational bit at that moment to be like, hey, dad, something has happened with the toilet. Can you come fix this with me? He would have helped. I know he would have helped. And yet for some reason, this powerful impulse within me motivated me to not say anything. Like I made this deep commitment within my own heart. I will not acknowledge out of my shame and disgust and desire to just not be embarrassed in front of my siblings. I'm not going to acknowledge that I did this. Inevitably, that evening, my dad, I remember around the dinner table, and then for some reason, I have this memory of us driving in the car. My dad starts questioning us like, I just want to know what happened in the bathroom. <laughs> Who broke it? What's going on with that bathroom? I was trying to fix it, and now it's worse. Were one of you guys touching it? And I remembered the pressure of this moment of silence in the back, and I remember internalizing this deep sense that both I knew what I had done was wrong, I knew what I was doing was wrong. I was lying. I think at one point my dad said, did you do it, John? As he's questioning each of us, I said, no, I would never have done that. I didn't do it. So the lying itself was wrong. But I was protecting myself from something I knew wouldn't even harm me, knew would be, if anything, just a short momentary burst of embarrassment that I had contributed to the, the damage that was already being done to this bathroom. And yet 
that weight of shame mixed with, to Augustine's insight, my own pride and the pressure from my siblings, the pressures from my peers contributes to the scene for me that, again, there were like so many worse things that I did in my childhood. There are so many worse things I have done since. But for some reason, that incident, the moment in the car as my dad is asking, who did this? I won't even be upset with you. I just am trying to figure out who did this. And an internal piece of me is convinced I will not acknowledge this fault. That is the darkness of the night that Augustine is getting into. That is the land of shadows, to use Cavadini's phrase, in which our identity, as we seek to protect it, as we seek to control it, as we seek to blow it up with air, is ultimately being filled with nothingness, is being filled with emptiness, and is even potentially increasing its capacity through pride for evil, that perversion of good into something more malicious that is potentially going to cause greater and greater harm. This is Augustine's insight through book two, and this is the force that's going to drive him as he's reflecting on his life. And I wonder for you what your instances with your pear tree would be, where, where those memories are of the early wounds, the wounds perhaps that sin, that evil, that death, inflicted upon you wounds that were maybe endured by another but then the wounds you yourself perpetrated the moments of nothingness and fragmentation which you embraced if you were really being honest i know i know each of us have these moments with the pear tree which is why augustine's testimony for all of its perhaps overinflation of a small sin that in the grand cosmic scale of life was not that consequential, Augustine rightly sees, no, that actually was consequential. That captured my pride in a way that even seeking my own good through sexuality or through money or possessions or power cannot convey. This is where my identity fragmented. Because I want to get through the confessions. And because I'm realizing now we could spend a long time on this book, in fact, I would love most to sit and just read through this book with you. I'm going to keep moving, and I'll move a little bit quicker here through books three and four. The intriguing things about the next two books for Augustine is first that in his years at Carthage, Carthage is the major city outside of Rome. It's really Rome, Alexandria, Carthage as the big New York City, LA, Chicago type experience in the Roman Empire. So Augustine's in the center of culture. He sees it in one of his famous lines. This is how Maria Bolding translated it. She says, So I arrived at Carthage where the din of scandalous love affairs raged cauldron-like around me. I've seen some translators who say that the hissing bubbling of love was burning around Augustine like a cauldron. I mean, you kind of get this sense of all of the cultural possibilities. He talks about how he gets sucked into the gladiatorial games. He gets sucked into the theaters. He's captivated by these storytellings that are manipulating his emotions, even though he himself has no stakes in the story that's being told. But the, the main thing in book three that Augustine is going to highlight is the intriguing possibility, the power, the potential for the life of the mind in his education as he's being educated for his identity, for the formation of himself. And he's going to talk about two very significant influences. One is the theology of a group called the Manichees. If you've ever read Augustine before, if you've ever read the Confessions, these Manichees were a central force in Augustine's life. They actually were a vibrant sect in the Roman Empire at this time. Just a little bit about the Manichees. They were following this prophet named Mani, who arose over in the Middle East uh, near Turkey, near present-day Turkey. And Mani claimed before Muhammad to be the manifestation of the prophet, the one Jesus foretold was to come. And Manny would claim that he actually, Manny, was the paraclete, the comforter, the one who had come to finally unveil the full teachings of Jesus to offer you Gnostic insight into the true gospels. And the thing you'll often hear talked about when it comes to Manichaeism that was really appealing to Augustine was that Manny, in his teachings, divided good from evil very strongly. So for Manny, he would talk often about this kingdom of light 
that God and Jesus as the Logos, the Son, I mean, this wasn't very historical. This wasn't really rooted in the Jewish scriptures for Manny. This was more his platonic reflections on things. He saw this kingdom of light as this force, literally like the light from the sun, that was vivifying, that was growing, that was allowing all life to flourish on earth, and yet it was being resisted by this kingdom of darkness, quite literally demons, demonic forces that were battling, waging this battle against the kingdom of light. And so Manny saw all of life as this active conflict between good and evil, often as sort of equal and opposing forces. And so Manny had this complex system that's not even worth getting into, this complex secret knowledge the deeper you got into Manichaeism, where the way that light could burst forth through the world and win was when you ate food, so vegetation which had imbued light. So there was this complex system in which light was consumed by the elect, the true followers of Manny who had these very rigid aesthetic diets and lifestyles. And in consuming the food, they then, through their consumption, were releasing light. Now, there's some really sort of horrifying and gross aspects of Manichaeism that involved the light being spread through sperm and sexual ejaculation. And there were some pretty horrifying stories about what really took place in the deeper inner sex of Manichaeism that sexuality was sort of tied up in this demonic struggle between darkness and light. And it's hard to know, most don't think Augustine really got so deep into it that he ever stumbled into those inner sanctums of Manichaeism. He seems to have more wandered around the fringe, been interested philosophically in this tension between light and darkness, and this idea that all of the universe was dualistic, that everything was either light or dark. That for him clarified this nominal Christianity that he had grown up with in his youth. But Augustine is undeniably going to be moved enough by the system, and Augustine was not alone. This Manichaeism was a compelling option, a live option that expressed itself as a very clear and powerful articulation. You hear how it gives you a real purposefulness, a sense of what you're supposed to do, how you're actively resisting the forces of darkness in the world by embodying this lifestyle, by supporting the elect. And you see how Manny borrowed all of this Christian terminology, phrasing, language, in a world that did not have sophisticated mechanisms to check the validity of claims. This was a hot religion that had just popped up in the last hundred years and that many were captivated by, including, as Augustine describes in Book 3, Augustine himself. But more important than Manichaeism, which... By the time Augustine is writing the Confessions, it's clear Augustine has not only turned from Manichaeism, but one of the reasons he's writing the Confessions is he wants to convince all of his fellow Catholics, those within the, the one true Christian church, he wants to convince them that he has thoroughly rejected this teaching of Manichaeism. Some would accuse him, even through late in his career, that he's harbored secret affiliation with Manichaeism. And Augustine is partly just trying to acknowledge it, get on top of it, dismiss it. That's one of the reasons why he's writing this book in the first place. But underneath Manichaeism, Augustine's going to talk about this really moving encounter he has with a book called Herentius, which we now have lost, so we don't actually have access to this book that he read. But it was written by the great Roman philosopher Cicero, who also was known as a fantastic orator. So this would have been beautiful, lively, and what we know from what Augustine tells us, Herentius was basically this call that Cicero gives to pursue a life of wisdom. So Cicero makes this argument through Herentius where he's going to say the most compelling thing you could do with your life is to find wisdom. What it means to live rightly, to know how to live rightly in this world. And if you can find wisdom, the true source of wisdom, then through wisdom, all of your life, all of happiness itself will become available to you because you have given everything to pursuing wisdom. So Herentius is going to structure the world in a way that, to be totally honest, makes sense to me, in which Herentius is basically arguing most people seek happiness and never ask what it takes to find happiness. And so they take whatever immediately is presented to them which is normally food and money and sex and power and success. And so they start consuming money and they start consuming success and they start consuming power. And then they look around and they realize none of those goods 
achieve the happiness that I was seeking. And Herentius's reversal through Cicero is Cicero suggesting we've actually gotten that backwards. If you seek wisdom instead, that is, if you seek what it truly means to live wisely, to imbibe understanding in that sort of core essence of your being, to know how to discern wisdom from that which is false, to know how to discern the good, the beautiful, and the true. Well, wisdom will produce happiness in a way that pursuing happiness will not produce other goods or wisdom. So the point is to get it right from the beginning, that if you pursue wisdom, you will find happiness. But if you pursue happiness, you're going to end up with nothing at the end. What's so beautiful and fascinating and mysterious about Augustine presenting this work is Augustine says when he read Herentius, it converted him. He quite literally talks like, I became a devotee to wisdom. I saw that my life's purpose was to seek wisdom so that in seeking wisdom, I could find happiness. As some scholars point out, some critical scholars of Augustine, they argue that Augustine, in becoming a devotee to wisdom, which, to just be clear, in the Roman world, wisdom was another term for philosophia. Philoso being friend of, lover of, and then Sophia being wisdom. Philosophy is just the love of wisdom. That's what philosophy at its best is trying to do. Philosophy is loving, pursuing, becoming friends with wisdom. For some, they suggest Augustine became committed to philosophy and never ultimately gave this commitment up. Philosophy is like there first. It's his core foundation, and then he builds Christianity on top of it. I think that misses the point of what wisdom is doing in Augustine. Wisdom is, for Augustine, the piercing insight of truth that is recognition that pursuing happiness for himself will never be enough. He needs some higher good than happiness that is going to order and structure the life which he is building around him. As Augustine's going to clearly show us, wisdom can't get him fully there. Wisdom is this compelling beacon. It's like a compass that's pointing him north. And yet wisdom itself, as Augustine pursues it, never becomes a destination that he can reach. In fact, there is no home for wisdom. There is no rest in wisdom. Wisdom still leaves Augustine restless as he searches for it. But wisdom for Augustine, communicated here via Cicero through the work Herentius, wisdom becomes one of the means through which God, in a good, is drawing Augustine back towards God. In a way, the critics are right that Augustine does never give up on wisdom, but instead discovers later in his life and tells us about this scene because he sees in his youth, wisdom captivating his heart was one of the very mechanisms that God was using to ultimately point Augustine's heart towards the realization that true wisdom can only be found in Christ and Christ's church. As we reflect on book three, the insight is that the life of our mind provides this complex arena for our identity, where I think if you were to ask Augustine, why does the mind matter? Augustine would say the mind is vital. The mind is where we're sorting all this out. The mind is where our desires are being structured and ordered towards some end. You have to pay attention to the life of your mind. You are not going to be able to find any sort of purpose, any sort of meaning, any sort of happiness if you don't do the difficult and strenuous toil of investigating and exploring the deep questions of life. This is why for so many of us, topics like theology and philosophy and psychology and sociology and any other form of inquiry, be it scientific or political or around the law, these Topics are vital because they're offering us insights into the deep fabric of the universe, either into deep insights of the natural world or into even deeper insights into the human soul, the human psyche, the way that human beings work, into what it means to be human. And instead of resisting any of those, I think Augustine embraces them and says these are vital means through which God is drawing us. And yet, part of Augustine's reason for sharing these two distractions, these two sources of intellectual flurrying in his youth, is to highlight that both Manichaeism and wisdom itself 
are going to hold out this incompleteness in his life. And he's going to keep showing us how Manichaeism and wisdom still did not satisfy the restlessness of his heart, still was not satisfying the deeper longings of his desire. So if that's book three, I have one last incident from book four from this stretch of Augustine's Book of Shadows to offer us when it comes to reflecting on our own identities. This too is a famous scene in the Confessions. It's going to come in book four again. There's a lot of other stuff going on here. The last scene around identity where Augustine really picks up some intriguing insights from his storytelling comes when a friend of his is going to die. Okay, so the way this incident goes, Augustine at the age of 21 has become a teacher now. This is sort of how you went through studies. If you were excellent, if you were excelling in your studies, you would naturally turn around and try to make money off of teaching others. The skills, particularly as a orator that everyone valued, it was just an easy way to begin your career. So Augustine is teaching. He goes back to Thagaste, the city that he was born in, to start this teaching enterprise. And when he returns, he's reunited with this childhood friend. So Augustine says when they were growing up, they were friends. They weren't as close as they would become. And Augustine seems to point to this year at the age of 21 while he's living in Thagaste, where he and this friend just get really tight. So this is a true deepening, a sharing of souls, this bonding of spirits. Augustine's phrase is that he's going to share the same values as myself. And again, remember, for Augustine, friendship is vital through his whole life. So not only was friendship pivotal there in his theft of the pear tree, but friendship is going to be pivotal for Augustine through his years as a bishop when several of his childhood friends will become bishops with him across Africa. And they become this central political power, really, in a way, in the church of deep-knit, close-bonded relational unity. So clearly, Augustine was a good friend, is a good friend loves this friend deeply. And in fact, the friendship is forming so intimately that Augustine says one of the things that happens with this close friend in Thagaste is that he convinces him to become a maniche with Augustine. So Augustine is an incredibly skilled orator at this point. I'm sure he was vastly intelligent, would have been viewed as intelligent by his friends, likely had read more than most of them. And so when Augustine comes in with this compelling vision of why Manichaeism gives all this insight into the dualistic nature of good and evil in reality, this friend, like many of Augustine's friends, gets swept into Manichaeism with him. Yet a year in, so just a year into this friendship, a really vital scene is going to happen where this friend comes down with a fever. It's going to become immensely sick, so sick, and especially in the ancient world, medicine was nothing like it is today, so sick that they really think, his family thinks he's going to die. So the family, out of concern, are going to baptize him in the Christian faith. They baptize this friend of Augustine's who's near his death, and miraculously, this friend recovers. So this friend recovers, Augustine goes to see him, and Augustine says he assumes that this friend is going to laugh about the incident with him. Like, how ridiculous that his family baptized him when we both know there's nothing to that Christian faith, and Manichaeism is the true knowledge, is the true insight into reality. And yet, as Augustine goes to laugh at this incident with his friend, he finds, unexpectedly, this friend is very angry with Augustine, and very defensive, and says, no. Do not mock this thing which is now so important to me. This is my new faith, that I am a Christian. Now Augustine says, when this friend responds this way, he is taken aback, shocked. And Augustine says he knows that he could dismantle any arguments this friend would have. I mean, Augustine was the one who convinced him to become a Manichaean in the first place. Yet Augustine says, because he's so upset, Augustine decides to drop it for the sake of the friendship. He doesn't say anything. He leaves him to his preferences. So I'm going to pick up here reading. This is what Augustine says. I stood aghast and troubled, but deferred telling him of my feelings in order to let him to get better first, thinking that once he was in normal health again, I would be able to do what I liked with him. But he was snatched away from my mad designs to be kept safe with you for my consolation. A few days later, the fever seized him anew, and he died and I was not there. So, I mean, just from a storytelling standpoint, you see with this scene, there's just this weight of tragedy over it. There's also a heavy sense of the unexpected nature of recovery and then illness again within a few days 
you know, the line Augustine offers of, I was not here with him. And yet there's this conflictedness in the narrative because Augustine's telling us this story now as a Christian in which he is grateful that this friend was baptized. And somehow amidst the, the power, the oratory power of Augustine resisted a moment of influence and instead saw the Christian faith aright. In fact, Augustine goes so far as to say, the Lord protected this friend of Augustine's from Augustine's mad designs, from Augustine's own pursuit of influence and power in this friend's life. But what's about to follow that I'm going to read to you in full just to give you the flow of, again, of Augustine's brilliant writing is going to be one of the most haunting and tragic outpourings of grief. Just an overwhelming flood of emotion that's going to hit Augustine in this moment. And it's sometimes hard to even tell why Augustine was so rocked by this friendship. In fact, I pointed out earlier, Augustine is going to mention almost as an afterthought that his father by this point has already died. And he throws it into one casual sentence and here, a friend that had only really deepened in friendship the past year of Augustine's life is going to warrant one of the most eloquent expressions of grief and loss that any ancient writer is going to offer us. There's a bit of mystery here. Yet I think Augustine is capturing the unexpected way in which grief can sneak up upon us and in which grief, though always connected to the aggravating circumstance, often has a deeper reverberating and rebounding sense of splashing across all of the disappointments and disillusionments that were likely building up in Augustine's life at this point. Let me give you what Augustine himself says. Black grief closed over my heart, and wherever I looked, I saw only death. My native land was a torment to me, and my father's house unbelievable misery. Everything I had shared with my friend turned into hideous anguish without him. My eyes sought him everywhere, but he was missing. I hated all things because they held him not, and could no more say to me, look, here he comes, as they had been wont to do in his lifetime when he had been away. I had become a great enigma to myself, and I questioned my soul, demanding why it was sorrowful and why it so disquieted me, but it had no answer. If I bade it trust in God, it rightly disobeyed me, for the man it had held so dear and lost was more real and more lovable than the fantasy in which it was bidden to trust. Weeping alone brought me solace and took my friend's place as the only comfort of my soul. All this is over now, Lord, and my heart has been assuaged with time. Let me listen now to you who are truth. Bring the ear of my heart close to your mouth, that you may tell me why weeping is a relief to the wretched. Can it be that although you are everywhere present, you have flung our wretchedness far away from you, abiding unmoved in yourself, while we are tossed to and fro amid human trials? Surely not. For if we could not weep into your very ears, no shred of hope would be left to us. How comes it then that such sweet fruit is plucked from life's bitterness, the sweetness of groans, tears, sighs, and lament? Does the comfort lie in this that we hope you will hear? This is certainly true of our prayers, for they presuppose a desire to reach you. But is it true of sorrow for what we have lost and of the grief that overwhelmed me then? No, for I neither hoped that he would come back to life nor made my tears a plea that he should. I simply mourned and wept, for I was beset with misery and bereft of my joy. Or is it that bitter tears match the weariness we feel over what we once enjoyed, but find attractive no more? What I see in this run from Augustine is the haunted emptiness of grief in our identity. Here's the thing. You have instances, memories of grief. I'm sure you do. I'm sure there are moments where loss has finally caught up to you. In fact, these experiences are so powerful that most of us exert all our energy simply trying to avoid them and numb ourselves out from them. I mean, an alcoholic is someone who is attempting to use medication to avoid their grief. A addict to Netflix is attempting to use the same medication to avoid their grief. Someone who's happy all the time, who loves to sit on the surface, 
who energetically is looking for the next hobby, the next pastime, the next experiential high to pursue. They are simply trying to avoid and medicate the grief that sits underneath their soul, underneath their life. And yet, as Augustine has this unexpected outpouring where he says, I was an enigma to myself. I didn't even know who I was. I couldn't even quite grasp why I was so overwhelmed in this moment by grief. What he sees and what he presses us on is that grief either is an insistence that we should be in control of the way things are, is this defiant shaking of our hand at a God we cannot control, or grief is this emptiness. It's just a wasted pouring out of tears, much like the pear that Augustine stole from the tree is simply discarded to the side. If there is no God, if we live in a world without God, then our grief is simply tears spilling with no reason, sterile seeds being dumped onto the ground. Where Augustine is trying to highlight for us is comfort to grief. Who can understand our own hearts when we find ourselves so emptied by the unexpected losses and suffering of the world? There's this real sense at this point in the Confessions where we've journeyed with Augustine through his own life. And we've seen that Augustine is trying to offer us this vision where he says, listen, go chasing for sex. It's going to be like this bubbling cauldron. Yes, it's going to stimulate, it's going to arouse, but it's going to be such an empty good once consumed. You're going to toss it to the side. He explores the life of the intellect, the life of the mind. He seeks knowledge. He puts his gaze towards wisdom. He leans into this pact, this tribe of the Manichees, this ideology that he hopes will give him insight and direction. And yet almost immediately in book four, he highlights how it is grief and it is suffering that almost immediately undermines any firmness of foundation that he thought he had grasped in the Manichaean or philosophical traditions. He's upended by his own grief and ultimately through these themes of sexuality, through intellect, through suffering, you find the common theme underneath is that Augustine, left to his own devices, cannot get clear on who he truly is. In fact, I would make the argument this is one of the great theological points that Augustine makes through his confessions. He is, in his own power, an enigma to himself. He does not know, he cannot know, no matter how hard he searches, even no matter how honest he gets about these events that took place in his earlier life, he cannot actually draw out a coherence. He cannot find a center that will actually hold. This is one of the great dilemmas of identity. What center will hold your identity together? What can you actually grasp onto that you can hold onto when it feels like your life is falling apart, when an intellectual tradition, when a book or an ideology lets you down, when suffering or grief upends your world, when you go to grab the interior of, your, of yourself and you realize in pride that you've only been puffing up this balloon that ultimately is emptier and emptier, full of more and more air? When you realize that your sins, the ways in which you have been a contradiction to yourself, the ways in which you realize you are hypocritical, that you don't actually live out that which you say you value most, has all along been fragmenting, just pulling apart any pieces of yourself that maybe even used to be held together. You no longer are who you used to be 10 years ago. You are not now the expression of your idealistic youth. If you get honest with your memories, you find yourself in the same boat as Augustine. The center of your identity will not hold. It is a land of shadows that you traverse. You have been chasing after illusory things and you have failed to find that which is most real, including yourself. So what hope do we have in this journey? Where do we turn? Where do we turn when we find ourselves living in the land of shadows? Well, Augustine is going to end book four this way, and with encouragement and with a little bit of anticipation, I would tell you that book five is when things begin to turn in Augustine's life. Book five is when the shift in perspective begins to emerge. And book five is when Augustine really starts naming God's involvement in the mysterious and unexpected outworkings of providence that are placing new breadcrumbs in front of Augustine that he never could have positioned for himself. But before we get to book five, 
Let me close with this reading at the very end of book four. After all of his grief, Augustine will say this, O Lord our God, grant us to trust in your overshadowing wings. Protect us beneath them and bear us up. You will carry us as little children, and even to our gray-headed age, you will carry us still. When you are our strong security, that is strength indeed. But when our security is ourselves, that is but weakness. Our good abides ever in your keeping, but in diverting our steps from you, we have grown perverse. Let us turn back to you at last, Lord, that we be not overturned. Unspoilt, our good abides with you, for you are yourself our good. We need not fear to find no home again because we have fallen away from it. While we are absent, our home falls not to ruins, for our home is your eternity. May you find in the land of shadows that that which is most real and most secure is not yourself, but is in the one who stretches out overshadowing wings, who seeks to protect and bear you up, who offers the strength and security of love, the very sacrificial love that we could never provide for ourselves, and yet in his love secures for you a home that even as you wander away, the home falls not into ruin for the Lord himself protects and builds up your home. This has been John Perrine with The Burning Word. Until next time, grace and peace.